Okay, hey, let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 2, Acts 2. We're going through the book of Acts. We started last week. We went through chapter 1. We're talking about these early days of the church and their life and their existence. Oh, he's trying. Um, just so you guys know, we had, a, after last week, there was a, a, a flood of requests to record these teachings and put them on our uh, youth group uh, podcast. Yeah, a ton of requests. Uh, one of one came in, and uh, so we we're gonna try to do that. So we're recording this. So if you miss youth group, you know you got practice or something, you can't be here. We'll try to get those up online for you during the week so that you can uh, follow along. No dice? Are we not? Is it? Because you're kind of. You're kind of distracting everybody with your slideshow that you're doing behind me. I'm really trying to get in the, in the groove here. Are we cutting it? Because I have pictures of that are straight screenshots from a, a, one of my favorite shows from the late 80s, and I was really hoping to show that today. But you're, I'm just going to have to describe it to you and you're going to have to envision it in your mind. Matt Kaler, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Man, when a hero comes along. Okay, Acts 2. Hey, uh, just a couple of announcements. Uh, last week when I was doing my introduction, I uh, mentioned that my daughter June is here in the youth group, and I think I'm gonna set a tradition of pointing her out every single week, so there she is right there. And I was just kind of introducing myself, and I said, I have a daughter, she's in the youth group, her name is June, and then word got around from some of you guys to my other daughter, Violet, who is in the youth group, but is not here because she's at ballet practice doing her whole thing. That I did not Welcome to the Jesus her, so Famous Youth Teachings Podcast. Our vision is to see Jesus Violet. famous in the lives She's a of the youth young of our woman, church. And you can tell that she we want to see so youth much. have she opportunities for them to come this to know Jesus in a complete and her way and be united together in love. And most importantly, strengthened in the moments of discouragement. Jesus Famous Youth meets on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. and has a middle school program available on Sundays at 11 a.m. Now, let's get into Max our teaching. Max a little beast. I don't know if you guys have dogs like this, but, but Max is the kind of guy that you'll just be sitting there at 9 o'clock at night, and he will randomly just get up and start running around the house and digging imaginary holes and just stress out for about three minutes, and then he's calm again. And then there's June and Violet, and in the back seat, third row, that's my 20-year-old daughter, Lauren. She's in college right now. So, okay, Acts 2 is what we're doing right now. We got a big chunk to cover tonight. We're going to do all of Acts chapter 2. Uh, anybody remember who wrote the book of Acts? Anybody? Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And let me ask this. Was Luke an apostle? Was he one of Jesus' 12 disciples? No, he wasn't. Luke was, uh, Luke was a guy who became a Christian during the ministry of Paul the Apostle. In fact, there's different theories as to when Luke became one of Paul's uh, disciples uh, and a follower of Jesus. 
but there's a story that I think, I'm fairly convinced it's when Luke comes into the scene. Because you'll see when we get to it in like chapter 16, all of a sudden the language in, in the book of Acts is going to change to not what Paul was doing, but he says, we we did this. We did that. So Luke starts putting himself into the story. And I, I think there was this moment where Paul, it, it, in chapter 16, he has a vision of across the ocean, a man from a place called Macedonia saying, come here and help us. And in the book of Acts, when he goes and helps them, that's when Luke comes onto the scene. So I almost wonder if Paul had a vision and Luke was in that vision. He goes across the water and he's like, dude, I know you already. I've had a vision. You've invited me to come here and preach the gospel. So anyways, Luke, he was a doctor uh, and an intelligent man. He put together this uh, book after doing a bunch of research. And uh, last week we saw the story of Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to leave you. And you guys need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're going to receive power. And with that power, you're going to go to the whole world sharing the message of Jesus, sharing the message of the gospel. So they went and gathered together for, for a period of 10 days in an upper room, and they're waiting on the Lord. They're praying. That's where we left them last week. Okay, you guys ready to move into the story? Let's read it together, starting in verse 1, if you guys would follow along in your Bibles. It says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were be bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we're hearing, each of us, his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Okay, let's just recap that little paragraph that we just read uh, together. First of all, it says that the day of Pentecost arrives. That, that, that means that 50 days after Jesus died on the cross, 10 days after Jesus ascended back to heaven, this day comes. It's a feast for the people of Israel. It has to do with the harvest and the crops and thanking God for the produce in the land. And that little group of Christians, there were 120 of them, chapter 1 tells us, they're all gathered together and they're waiting upon the Lord. And as they're waiting, as they're praying, they hear this sound like a mighty rushing wind. Things begin to shake and they're filled with the Spirit of God. Now in this moment, the emblem that they were filled with the Spirit is amazing. It's a ball, like a ball of fire on or floating over 
their heads. This, as far as we know, has never happened again in the history of the church. So when I say to you, you too can be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't be afraid. There's no little fireball that's going to come out over you. You're not going to be like Mario when he eats the fire, uh, what, what is it, you know, you get the fireballs. You're not going to have that. Uh, it seems, I, I th here's what I think is happening. I think that the same God who, remember how he led Israel in the wilderness with a pillar of fire? And when they would sacrifice to God and the fire came over the holy place, I think that God is saying, this is now my new temple of the Holy Spirit. Th these are my people. My fire is identifying them. And so with the Spirit of God in them, this small group of 120 people, believe it or not, they start speaking languages that they previously did not know. Languages that they previously did not know. And apparently, they were speaking these languages well because since it was a feast, there were people from all over the world that were visiting. And these people from all over the world, they understand Hebrew, but they also understand their home language. And they start hearing these Galileans, these guys from the region of Galilee, they start hearing them speaking in perfect dialect their own home native language. And they start asking about it. You know, what is going on? You guys are speaking languages from all over the known world, and we know that you have no business knowing these languages. Now, what were they saying? Luke said that they were declaring the wonderful works of God. In these other languages, they're preaching about Jesus. They're talking about the Lord. So some people were blown away, but where we left off, some people said, oh, these guys... They're drunk. They've been drinking, you know, that because, and I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that's drunk, but usually they don't speak in another language that they've never known before fluently, but, but apparently that's what these people thought. They, that, this is what explains what is happening here uh, in this moment. All right, so Peter, let's read on in the passage in verse 14. Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. I, I love this little moment in Peter's life. It's like, he steps out into God's calling on his life. When you read about Peter in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter fails a lot. Here the Spirit of God comes upon him and he becomes a leader in the New Testament church. And he starts speaking. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. That's his way of saying it's nine o'clock in the morning and they have not been drinking. But this it was what was uttered by the prophet Joel. He goes back to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, just to set the record straight, I think when Peter's quoting from that, he's talking about two different moments in the life of Jesus. One, where after Jesus ascends, he pours out his spirit and everyone who believes in him gets the spirit of God. And then there's a gap where later Jesus returns and there's cataclysmic events. He kind of talks about that, the sun turning a different color and things like that. There's a gap in between. 
But the thing that I want to point out from these first 21 verses that we just plowed through is I want to point out that it seems clear that what Luke is thinking about is how the Spirit of God is for absolutely everyone who believes. Let me see if I've got this on the screen for you. The Spirit is for everyone who believes. The Spirit is for everyone who believes. Uh, here's the text that we just read, 21 verses. And I've highlighted for you a bunch of words that make it clear that that's what Luke is thinking. Verse 1, they were all together in one place. Verse 3, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse 4, all were filled. Verse 5, from every nation under heaven, they heard, verse 6, their own language. Again, verse 8, their own language. And then you got all these different people groups mentioned in verse 9 and 10 and 11. And then on down to verse 16 and 17, Peter giving his message says, the Spirit will come on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men and old men, and male servants and female servants. And then the kicker verse, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You guys see that? It's kind of a little tip for you on how to read the Bible. Like what is being repeated over and over again? What, what words are jumping out over and over again? That's probably the emphasis of the writer, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is for everyone. Or if I could say it in another way, everyone can get in on this. Everyone can get in on this. There is no one for whom the gospel is not something that they could receive. Everyone can get in on this. Everyone can receive the Spirit of God. Get in on what? Get in on the beauty of a relationship with the living God. When I, was a, when I was a boy, I used to love watching this TV show. I alluded to it a little bit earlier, and I'm, I'm going to explain it to you, but I, I had to get some pictures because there's no way that I could convey with my words how incredible this show was. The show only ran for three or four years, and it was like one of the first reality TV shows in human history, and it was called... American Gladiators, okay? American Gladiators. Dom knows what I'm talking about. American Gladiators, they were incredible. What they did is they took these like jacked up men and women, star athletes, and they put them in these like crazy skimpy outfits and they made them play games, competitions against like regular normal people. And uh, it was like a, a challenge, like, you know, you'd have like these dudes that are just huge and then it'd be like, and they're battling against Hank today. And Hank would, you know, Hank is an internet technician and he likes to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And he like comes out and he's just like trying his best to defeat these gladiators. And I love this show. The first season of the show, they would try to find contestants that were also jacked and huge. And they realized like people don't want to see this. They want to see David versus Goliath. So they started doing this. So here are the American gladiators. These are the first seven gladiators. These people were incredible. You had people like this guy, Thunder. That, these are the kind of names that they had, Thunder. Viper, look at Viper. Look at that hair. I love that hair. This is, just by the way, recently, I don't know how many of you guys know Evan Gailey. You guys know Evan? 
I had a dream recently, no joke, and it was so vivid. And it was of Evan playing basketball for Carmel High School like he does. And he was playing point guard and he was driving all over the court. And the only thing that was different in my dream was that he had a mullet like that. <laughs> and it was just flowing everywhere. I felt it was a prophetic dream and I shared it with him. I was like, bro, I feel like the Lord is putting it on my heart. You need to get a, a mullet like this. And then this guy, oh, Malibu. Yeah, Malibu. Now, what he's got there, do you see those tennis balls? It's, he's, he's, it's called the Eliminator, and he's doing this thing where, like, the, the contestants are in an obstacle course, and he's shooting these tennis balls at them with this gun. It's, that's it right there, that circle up at the top. That's them, and they're shooting at these dudes down below. And they would just do all kinds of crazy stuff on this show. You had... You know, these cages that they would roll around in and like bang each other all over the place. You had to try to like knock a gladiator off a little pedestal. They had this crazy, like up, this is an, an upside down picture. They would actually get on the roof and do like a little race course. They'd have to do a little hand thing like that. And then you see what I mean? You just got these like normal looking people. That's the normal person in the blue in the middle, just getting killed. I loved it, it was the best. <laughs> Little dudes like that guy in the blue just getting smoked by gladiators. It was great. This was just a great, great show. And, and, and that's what it was. The thing that was so amazing about you guys, like, have you guys ever seen the gladiators? Yeah. I'm not encouraging you to, like, go watch it on YouTube. But you could probably find some and, uh, you know, get your parents' permission first. But, but the thing that I loved about that show was it just, like, when you'd see these contestants, you just felt like, dude, I could do that. You know, if, if that guy, if John, who is a kindergarten teacher, if he could do it, if Sarah, who is a nurse, if she could do it, then maybe there's a chance for me. Okay, I don't know. This is my very dorky attempt at giving you a fun illustration to say the spirit is for everyone who believes. There is none of us who can't partake of this. You know, sometimes people will talk to me like, oh, man, Nate, I would love to like be in the ministry. I'd love to do some of the things that you do. I'd love to give my life to Jesus. I'd love to walk with him. I'd love to be used by him. You can. You can. This is for anyone. This is for everyone who hears the voice of the Lord and says yes to him. The Spirit is for everyone who believes. Okay, now in verse 22, Peter rolls on with uh, his message. And I, I just want to say this to you guys, you know, Jesus' famous youth, in thinking about the Spirit being for anyone and everyone and that anyone can get in on this, I want to encourage you guys as a youth group to make sure, because this early church group, they were not exclusive. They were inclusive. From the very get-go, they were reaching out to other people. From the very get-go, they had a perspective that said, other people need to know about this. And I want to encourage you guys with that, because like Pastor Matt, I've been a youth pastor before, and I've seen different seasons of youth ministries, life cycles, and a season inevitably comes where a youth group can get funky, where they cease wanting to see new people come. Honestly, as Christians, we always say we want that. Oh, I want to, I you know, people will come to the church and they're like, Pastor, I love 
this church. I love the size of this church. The size of this church is perfect for me. And I, I have a standard question that I ask them whenever they say that to me. Whenever someone's like, I just love the size of this church. It's not too big and it's not too little. I just look at them and I'm like, what if 100 people got saved today and were added to this church? Would you have to leave because it changed all of a sudden? No, we need to have a spirit that says it's not about me. It's not about what I want. I want to see as many people as possible get in on this. So I'd encourage all of you, be welcoming, be inviting, not just inviting people when they come, but once you get onto the church property, be welcoming and inviting and loving because it's hard to be a new person coming to a youth group. So I love that there from Peter. All right, okay, second thing, verse 22. Peter gets into his message. We're going to read the whole thing real quick. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God, verse 24, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you, verse 27, will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter said in verse 29, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both him, him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, Peter says a lot of things in that paragraph that we just read, that teaching of his. The big thing that he does is he highlights an Old Testament prediction from King David. King David in the Psalms had said, I believe that the Lord is not going to decay in the grave. That's what God has said to me, David said. And then Peter points out, clearly David has decayed in the grave because his tomb is with us here in Jerusalem. We know when he died, and we know where he was buried. And so Peter says, David was talking about someone else who was going to come, and then he announces to everybody, and that someone else is Jesus. You guys killed him, but he was raised by God from the dead. So the first point that I made is the spirit is for everyone who believes, but believes what? You know, it's not just we believe, I, I have this feeling, this sense, it's something specific that we believe. And it's this, the resurrection is what we need to believe. The resurrection is what we need to believe. This is what Peter is highlighting all throughout 
his message. In fact, here's the verses that we just read together. Big old chunk that we went through. And I tried to highlight all the things that show you that he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's honing in on. He talked about how Jesus was crucified and killed. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosed the pangs of death. Not possible for him to be held by it. He talks about David saying, I saw the Lord always before me, arisen at the right hand. He says in verse 27, he'll not be abandoned to hell or Hades. He said he won't be corrupted. His body is not going to decay. He talked about the paths of life in verse 28 and how in verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, not abandoned in Hades. His flesh did not see corruption. And then verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. Verse 34, David did not ascend into the heavens, but the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. All of these things are pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. That is the thing that we need as Christians to believe. Now, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is what makes Christianity Christianity. Without the resurrection, uh, Paul the Apostle this even says this in the Bible, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile, it's pointless. Christianity is pointless, you are still in your sins. So no resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection, no heaven. There's lots of people that try to create a Christianity that has no resurrection, no supernatural, no death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it is not Christianity, right? So. The thing to believe is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I just want to point out to you some clues about the resurrection, uh, that it is true. Uh, and here's just six of them right here. First of all, you have the documents. The documents themselves, what I'm talking about is the New Testament. I don't know if you guys know this, but there are so many copies of the New Testament from the first and second and third centuries of the church. And there's you can actually reconstruct the whole New Testament with just what Christians in the first hundred years or so said about the New Testament. They quoted it so much that you could reconstruct almost the entire New Testament. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because there is no other ancient document that has as many copies as the New Testament has copies. And this is important because you are going to hear attacks against the New Testament, the scripture, for the rest of your Christian life. And so you need to know that there's no other document from antiquity like the New Testament. There's so many copies of it, and by comparing them, you know that what we hold in our hands is uh, the accurate representation of what was originally written. Uh, the second clue about the resurrection's truthfulness is the empty tomb. Uh, the early antagonists against the gospel, you know what they could never do? They could never just go to the tomb that Jesus was in. They could never produce the body of Jesus. That empty tomb was always a sticking point and issue. Even the enemies of the cross from the very beginning concocted a story. Oh, they stole Jesus' body rather than just going over the tomb and being like, these guys keep saying that Jesus rose from the dead, like, here he is, right in here. Case closed. That's not what happened. The empty tomb was huge. Number three, the witnesses that the Bible mentions. 
Uh, did you guys know that in the first century, uh, a, and I'm not saying this is right, but in the first century, a woman's eyewitness testimony was not admissible in a court of law. It didn't count for anything. But when you read the New Testament documents, you know who the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are? They're women. And the reason that they're put in there is not because it's a fabrication, a made-up story. It's because that's what happened. So the gospel writers, though in the first century, the testimony of these women didn't count for much, they knew this is what occurred, so we need to write it down. Another thing about these witnesses is that they went to their deaths holding fast to the confession that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. Now, in modern times, you might get someone like uh, an Islamist who, uh, you know, becomes convinced that if they uh, commit suicide and destroy other people, that they will go into paradise. And so you might say, well, isn't that similar? They went to their deaths believing this thing. But the thing about the early first century Christians is that because they had seen Jesus, they had the ability to know whether what they believed was true or a lie. You might die for something you believe to be true, but can't verify it's a lie. But these first century Christians, they were witnesses. They could verify if it were a lie. And they went to their deaths believing in Jesus. Another clue to the truth of the resurrection is that in the Gospels, when Jesus appears, you know what the general response of his people is? It's not, oh man, we knew it. <laughs> the general response is, nah, uh like we don't believe you. Let's touch you. Are you real? Like they were not expecting the resurrection of Jesus. And, that, and that's huge. These guys, they didn't have all this faith. They didn't have all this belief. Number five, the appearances of Jesus. You know, the Bible says that he appeared to 500 people at one time in northern Israel. 500 people saw him. And in those early days when the church was preaching the gospel, you didn't have to go far to find someone who you'd say, you saw him risen from the dead? And they'd say, yeah, I saw him. And then finally, the presence of the church is another great uh, proof or clue of the resurrection of Jesus. It was in those early days that the church shifted from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday. Just the fact that we exist at all is a clue that the resurrection actually occurred. I don't think if it had been a false thing, there would be any chance that the church would exist in its current form. So the resurrection is what we need to believe. All right, you guys ready to finish this up? Read the end of the chapter. Verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
and praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the last thing I want you to see tonight. The Spirit is for everyone who believes. The resurrection is what we need to believe. And that belief can produce some amazing stuff. Just look at what Peter said. Look at all the things that happened to these people who believed in Jesus. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted. They repent of their sins. They turn from their old life. They're baptized in water as a way to identify with Jesus. They're forgiven of their sins. They get the Holy Spirit to live inside of them. They devote themselves to Bible teaching, to hanging out with other Christians, to eating meals together, to praying to God. Miracles, many signs and wonders are done among them. They start selling their stuff and living in common together, being generous with each other. And every single day, they're going to the temple uh, to worship God and breaking bread, eating meals together. They have generous hearts, they're praising God, and they have favor with all the people. These are amazing things that are happening in the lives of God's people. That's why I wanted to say that. This belief can produce some amazing stuff. You know, if you surrender your life to Jesus, the message isn't all about, hey, you need to change yourself. The message is, if you believe in Jesus and the power of his resurrection, the truth of his resurrection, he can do a wonderful work changing and transforming you from the inside out. This on the screen, my last verse of the night, is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul is talking about how true change and transformation comes. He says, it happens like this. We, as Christians, with an unveiled face, so we, we, we don't have to fake it with God. We, we get to go hang out with him. And as we behold him, as we spend time with Jesus, the glory of the Lord we are being transformed. It's one of my favorite words in the whole Bible, the word transform, into the same image. In other words, we're becoming like Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You guys, you don't need to fake and act like you're already like Jesus right now at this point in your life. You get to just walk with Jesus believing that his spirit is for you, believing in his resurrection, and then watching him slowly, surely, and steadily make you more and more like Jesus. Amen? All right, let me pray for you and your groups. Lord, thank you so much for the truthfulness of your word. We ask, Lord, and pray that you would change us, that you would transform us. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you at Youth Group on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. If you'd like more information about JFY or have a question, reach out to us at joshuas at calvary.com or DM us on Instagram at ymcalvary.